Hi everyone, welcome to the Value Inspiration podcast. My name is Ton Dobber and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. And this podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is John Ruby, CEO of Jonar. We're looking at a, at a, a value first, a concept first, which is just because something needs to be powerful doesn't mean it needs to be hard to use. So it's pretty straightforward to come up with a complicated solution for a complicated problem. To find a simple and elegant solution to a complicated problem is a lot harder to do. And when you try and even succeed a little bit, some exciting things happen. We applied this concept to ERP, probably if not the biggest, then one of the biggest software packages out there. It's massively powerful, it's very expensive, it has benefits, reducing costs, increasing market opportunity, but it's terrible. As a whole, within the market, it's just awful. The big idea that we as this little company would be able to change this multi-hundred billion dollar market from the ground up, start from scratch, and really you know, make, it, make a real change in what is possibly the biggest behemoth of a, of a software market. This is John. John is a rare person who thrives at the intersection of business challenges, technology, and people. As opposed to most, he relishes on the opportunity that uncertainty provides. While working successfully in a variety of industries, he has always tried to learn from each and carry those lessons forward. John's philosophy for both technology and business is guided by the belief that just because something has been done in a certain way in the past, it's never the reason to keep doing it that way in the future. As such, he's constantly challenging the status quo to find better and more powerful ways to drive business forward. And this inspired me, hence I invited John to my podcast. We explore what is broken in the enterprise resource planning category and what could be for innovators if the category was democratized. We also address what's keeping the industry behind, what could be done to change that, and how this could result in the ability to deliver remarkable impact. By listening to this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, that the number one tool in business software is not 3DLs, not databases or platforms, The number one tool is people and their perceptions. Secondly, why you should aim high and end up with a situation where your biggest sales obstacle is people believing that what you offer is too good to be true. And thirdly, how to build a culture of curiosity, a team that constantly renews itself and pushes the boundaries of what is possible. So John, welcome on my podcast and thank you for making the time today to tell my audience about the big idea behind your company. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, it's it's a pleasure. I've been I've been looking around. I got a, I got recommendation. Well, I got a recommendation to to speak to you, and when I was looking at your website, I, it immediately got clear to me why that was the case. But before we start about that, can you explain? Well, can you describe yourself in a couple of words, three words? Myself in three words. Yeah. Um, as a disruptor, as 
somebody who likes to think, I know that's not a single word, and someone who's very curious. Nice. I'll tell you later, later on why I think that's the case. But Okay, so your, your company, Jonas, if I go to your website, the first thing that springs to mind is ERP sucks. <laughs> and <laughs> it made me smile. I mean, I can only agree with you. I've been in the ERP, ERP space for, for, well, a quarter of a, of a century almost. So I, I can see where you're going with this. But yeah, to, to start this off, what, what was the big idea? What is the big idea behind your company? And, and how did you come up with this? Well, so I guess we, the big thing that we look at is we're looking at a, at a, a value first, a concept first, which is just because something needs to be powerful doesn't mean it needs to be hard to use. So it's pretty straightforward to come up with a complicated solution for a complicated problem. And that's what ERP is, right? It's it's a very, very complicated problem that has been tried to be solved with lots and lots and lots of moving pieces that all have purpose-built buttons and functions. That's the approach that people have been taking for over 50 years now. And that really hasn't changed. Yeah. But to find a simple and elegant solution to a complicated problem is a lot harder to do. And when you try and even succeed a little bit, some exciting things happen. Okay. So we applied this concept to ERP, which members of your audience, if they're not familiar, is probably, if not the biggest, then one of the biggest software packages out there. It does a lot. It does a lot, a lot of things. It's massively powerful. It's very expensive. It has benefits, reducing costs, increasing market opportunity, but it's terrible. As a whole, within the market, it's just awful. And it's awful as measured by how happy the people who use it and pay for it are with the product once that once there. And I'm not talking about during the implementation, because that's rough regardless. I'm talking about after the fact. Yeah. So I mean the, the big thing that we did is we decided that as a little company, if we stuck to a set of values, we would be able to work on something that we called Paragon ERP. And the word Paragon means the best example of a characteristic or thing. So literally the name of the software means what an ERP should be. And that was the big idea that we as this little company would be able to change this multi-hundred billion dollar market from the ground up, start from scratch and really, you know, make it make a real change in what is possibly the biggest behemoth of a, of a software market that there is. Interesting. And that's also cool that you, that you pick a name like that because it sort of keeps you honest to, to the dream. But a couple of things got me pretty curious. One of the things you said, the moment you get this right, very interesting things happen. What do you believe is the opportunity if we get this right? From a monetary perspective, which honestly is not our, our primary motivator, and, and I think that might be a good thing, you're talking about a market, like I said, that's hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, the biggest players in the space you know, range from making one to $30 billion a year in revenue. If you could disrupt that, there's a huge amount of money on the table. What's more, it's my contention at least, that the majority of the market remains untouched. And that's because ERP has always been focused at the large scale businesses out there, but the small and medium-sized market also want the same benefits that an ERP could provide, but it's impossible 
for them to access it because just the product is, is historically way too expensive. So that's kind of the market opportunity. But as far as I'm concerned, the far bigger and more exciting piece of it is democratization of a tool that has always been out of reach of the real innovators of the world, which as far as I'm concerned is in the entrepreneur community, the people who you know, say that they're going to try and climb the mountain without a 5,000 person team. So by finding a way to deliver all of these features at a very, very high quality level, but at a price point that is, you know, five to 10% of what it normally is, and we could now offer it to a much wider group of really interested and interesting people. Yeah. I mean, I've been in this space for a long time. And I mean, typically uh, I started small, small and medium sized businesses. And I know that, of course, that's, yeah, that's the market in itself. And you got various players in various markets that are doing better or worse. And of course, then there's the mid market and up, which is typically the international players that, that have to scale and so on to, to really move beyond the, the boundaries of just one single country. But I mean, if I hear you, 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 you make me believe there is no, there's no, option for those small and medium-sized businesses. What about for companies like Sage and companies like, what have you, uh, Quicken? So those are good questions. And those companies do some things. But if you look historically what they are, I mean, I, I never want to speak badly of anybody in this space because it's really, deploying ERP is not easy, right? But I will say that the approach that a lot of them have taken, if you look at a, a product like Sage, it's, there's a lot of history. That has been layered on top of its product layer on top, on top of, you know, another uh, product. And there are a lot of things technologically that personally, it, it's funny. I was sitting in a room yesterday. We were onboarding some new staff and I was trying to explain to them how many hours a typical company expects to deploy on training of new staff on their ERP. yeah, yeah. yeah. And my, you know, uh, young new employees in their 20s looked at me like I was insane. What do you mean training on software? We're coming to a generation that doesn't think that training and software go together at all. Software should be something that you should just be able to use. It should be obvious how to create a new order or how to process a payment. And anything that isn't obvious is just, you know, it's just bad software. Yeah. And those expectations generationally are going to smash headfirst at, you know, 100 kilometers an hour into the brick wall that is ERP. Yeah, um, sure. And if you take, let's say, a, a use case like the point of sale software market, which is also a very big one, it got totally disrupted a number of years ago when there were some new technologies available, widely available and easy to use tablets iPads often that were internet connected and cloud-based softwares, all of a sudden the momentum in point of sale flipped dramatically and seemingly in, in a very short period of time. And it was because these people who grew up using these mobile devices had no patience for the clunky old systems of the past. Yeah, I agree. And you're making a fair point there. The, the solutions are available, they're just not, not a good alternative. What really intrigued me was what you, when you were saying is you were talking about a concept, the concept first, you're talking about a set of values. So what is the approach you're taking here? Because what I believe, what, I've, what I also kind of describe in my book as one of the things that, that, that is keeping a lot of value behind 
is that organizations just keep evolving what they have step by step by step rather than taking a couple of steps back and say, wait a minute, we should approach this from the very, very end or from a completely different angle and maybe even argue, why do you need this particular screen or process in the first place? So what is your view on that? So it kind of started, if you think about a, a journey where, where we came from, when we started this whole idea, the company had been around for many, many years, and I took over operations in 2011, okay. so about eight years ago. And the funny thing that ended up happening is the first thing I did is I looked for another software to resell, right? Because I thought, you know, surely there must be an ERP system out there that is better than the one that we were selling because the one that we were selling, while it had its good points, was a series of, you know, popsicle sticks that was stuck together together with elastics and bubblegum. And there had to be something else out there. And we said, well, maybe we'll resell something else. So I did a fairly big review of the market and found out there really wasn't anything that was good. And that actually is the genesis of what you mentioned earlier, which is we kind of looked at it and said, wow, this ERP stuff really sucks. And it wasn't just an outward comment about everybody else. It was an inward look at ourselves and said, our customers are not happy with how this thing works. And just you know, moving things, fixing things was a little bit like shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, didn't have a lot of uh, utility to it. True. So the first thing we did is, and this was, I guess, we, I mean, me, I spent months talking to users and collecting information and feedback about the funny that what, what it became was less about what they thought ERP should be and how to fix it and things like that. Because I found that the users had very disparate ideas on how it should be, but they uh -huh. all kind of agreed on what they hated about it. So I went around interviewing people about what they hate, which was surprisingly something they, they were very, very quick to say, oh, yeah, I hate that, you know. And we, we came up with a small number of actionable items of things that they just hated. So we kept the legacy business running and, and kept uh, working with customers and learning more. But I actually spent about half a day every day for most of a year designing a solution that covered all the things that they hated and walked out of it with a pretty new approach to ERP and tried to look at using newer technologies and newer approaches to blow up some of the old limitations because that's one of the things that I found, that the things that people hated were often based on technological realities that were two or three decades out of date. We'd already fixed them in other industries. So after designing, this, this was the fun thing that happened. And by fun, I mean not so fun, is I went out and tried to hire experts, meet everybody I could in the technology space and say, all right, can we build this thing that I just designed? And the answer I got was a categorical no. Really? Yes. It cannot be built. It doesn't work that way. We've built some things technologically, you know, just a, a few of the highlights, for example, if you look at an item and you think about in ERP having an unlimited number of attributes for that product or item that can uh -huh. change on the fly. So imagine doing an implementation or a setup where you could implement your ERP and then change your mind a month later and modify the implementation with no user impact. Yep. That, that's just unheard of in the ERP space, right? I know. 
So that, that was what I wanted to do. And the technology that I wanted to use to do that was something that they said would not be performant enough, wouldn't be robust enough, wouldn't be able to allow us to control access well enough, wouldn't be deployable, wouldn't be, there were just a million reasons why it couldn't be done. So the funny thing was, is the first thing I did after, you know, after a few months of trying to work that out, is I went and found a couple of students and told them what I wanted, but didn't give them access to any other information. And what I learned from that is when people are young enough and smart enough, they, you know, they don't think inside the box because they don't actually know that the box exists. Exactly. So they made me some prototypes. And then I took these prototypes back to the people who told me that it was impossible. And they looked at the prototypes and they said, no, 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 this could be built much better, which made me laugh, right? Because you mean the thing that you told me was impossible to build in the first place, you could improve? And they said, yes, just give it to us, please, now, give it to me. And they got really excited. And so we were able to overcome a lot of these impossibilities. And it helped us build sort of a set of values. And the thing that it kind of taught us was that the number one first tool in building software isn't 3GLs or databases or platforms or anything like that. The number one tool is people and their perceptions. Yeah. So if you build a team that believes that nothing is impossible, that believes that they are able to work far better and deliver more as a collaborative unit than they could with individuals that actually treats people as people as opposed to resources, you could do some pretty amazing things, which we proceeded to do over the course of the next few years. All of the standard approaches, just we challenged everything. And that was, it doesn't mean that we changed just for change's sake. We just, we evaluated everything. So some of the things that, that, that people just said couldn't be done, we were able to achieve with a lot of not just not just able to do it, but rather do it at a far higher level than we originally anticipated. Interesting. Can you give an example of something that you really took to the next level? I always talk about kind of delivering shifts in value. Sure. So, wow, there's a lot of them. Let's start with the concept of, I mean, Ton, you come, you come from an ERP background. So to be able to, and we're deploying this actually in the next month, let's say you're an Amazon seller and you're somebody who sells their products to the Amazon merchant program. Could you imagine, as an Amazon seller, taking your merchant ID, putting it into a website with a credit card number, being charged a very, very small fee, let's say 150 US dollars, pressing a single button, and then within 20 minutes, have a fully configured, integrated, and deployed, and absolutely usable ERP system for as many users as you need to plug into it. Pretty hefty. That's cool. Yeah. With all of the products that you had in your Amazon shop already showing up in your ERP and synchronized, all of your inventory synchronized, all of your ability to make scheduled orders and things like that. So that is something that we were uniquely able to do because there's a thread that passes through the whole thing. We took a database design approach that was atypical Uh and it allowed us to move and build that level of deployments that worked so fast and so deep because we stuck to very almost purest goals on the technology, on the technology side. 
Yeah, it's, well, I mean, you, you, you say challenge everything and kind of do away with, with the things that everybody has become used to. And that's where you create moments where, yeah, where actually I said, wow. So, and I would imagine that your customers say, say exactly the same. Yes, we get a lot of feedback from people who say, actually our biggest sales obstacle at this point is people really believe that what we're saying is too good to be true. Let me make a small interruption here. John just made an intriguing remark about the way they created a very desirable sales objection. That ability to wow their ideal customers around something that's highly valuable and critical is a key trait of what defines a remarkable business software company. If you want to get some fresh guidance about what you can do to make your software business both remarkable and impactful, just drop me a note at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Back to the interview. I have this fun thing that is my favorite thing to do. If I ever get pulled into a customer or a partner demonstration, I pass the keyboard and the mouse to them and say, okay, you're going to do the demonstration. And they say, well, but we've never seen the software before. I said, well, that's the test. If you're able to navigate and use the software because we've designed it easily enough, then that means that it worked. Anything that you have difficulty with is something that, you know, we have to take back as something to, to design better. And that's really fun. And they, that it shifts it, it, in all of these meetings. I try to find a way to turn it into a positive interactive thing as opposed to a conflict and antagonistic approach, which is really the model that a lot of people have in those scenarios. True. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Interesting and inspiring. So from the things, I mean, you've, you've started... 2011 with the company, you've, you've, you really spent time on understanding what, what people that use the system or, well, people that need those systems require, want, care about, hate. So what are the things that, that, that you believe make a system remarkable? So I think that we actually, again, it comes back to the people on our side and the people who we work with. So one of the things we realized early on is that anytime you're making a software for humans to use, which is most of them, there's a high level of empathy required. So you need to understand what each of them is doing in the course of the day. You need to understand that it's not just as a user, I need to do this because a user could go through a process and does the same process 10,000 times, but a person had an argument with their spouse that morning, is hungry, is distracted. You know, this is the first time that the person is using the product versus this is the 300th time that they're using the product. Those human elements have a lot to do with how you highlight things, how you, where you place buttons and, and stuff like that. So when we go through it, we work very hard to understand what each of these people, what their major challenge is and how to approach it. So things, for example, we realized is that if we were going to make a multi-tenanted cloud product, one of the things that ends up happening with those is they all work the same for every single customer, right? They all have the same kind of base code. And maybe there's a little bit of fiddling and configuration between the two, but an ERP, it wasn't going to cut it like that because ERP is the bottom of the, of the building, right? It's the foundation. It's the bottom of the stack. It's the, it's the thing that everybody needs and everybody has a slightly or extremely different workflow. 
So yeah. how were you going to do that without deploying multiple versions? So one of the things that we did is we created a mechanism without going into too much technical detail. We created a mechanism for people to be able to build their own workflow. I'm not talking about, you know, little bits and pieces with a, a simple, you know, drag a square over here or a, or a oval over there inside a workflow diagram. I'm talking about basically using a wizard to write workflow code, right? If it's Tuesday and this customer ordered something on Monday, then send them a warning saying that they're trying to order the same thing they ordered yesterday uh-huh. and have the customer be able to build that without having to know a, a single word in a coding language yep. and let them deploy that in their own environment without affecting anybody else. So those were things that we were able to, to achieve. I think one of the funny things that we've learned is that everybody seems to have been trained to believe that the best thing to do in life is to seek shortcuts. I've heard, I've seen a very interesting quote of it. I think it was from Seth Godin this week. The point was, if the shortcut is really working, then the shortcut would be the standard. (laughs) Yes, but my perspective on it is a little bit different because I think that a lot of what we seek is always, everything should be Everything should be simple. When I say that there should be a simple solution to complicated problems, that doesn't mean that the person creating the solution doesn't have to work very hard to take into account all of the different facets of the complicated problem. True. Uh, I think that there is no shortcut to hard work. I think you have to spend the time to understand your users. I think you have to understand, spend the time and the hard work to understand how your team sees things and force them to look outside of themselves. I think you have to keep challenging yourself every single day. I, I don't think that there's, there's any, there isn't any point where you could just rest on your laurels because as soon as you do, stuff starts to fall apart. You have to build a culture that constantly renews itself, that is always looking to learn and grow. If there's anything I've learned, it's that the journey is long and the journey is hard and you just have to keep walking and hopefully you bring some people along with you to walk along the walk along the road with you but nobody's ever like there's no there's no car that's going to stop and pick you up and drive you to the finish line no no exactly i mean that's that's an interesting topic and you also made a made a point about it in the beginning you said you were a disruptor a thinker and you're very curious that curiosity that's it's an element that i also address pretty big time in my book because I believe it's that is sort of the key to well to what you call continuously renew yourself to look for what is coming next and to be and to be ready for that. So how do you kind of organize that within your organization? How do you kind of encourage people to be curious? So there's a lot of things. A it's it's it starts with culture. We always try to bring people in and make sure that they understand what we value right at the beginning and not just by placing values on on a plaque on the wall, but actually by living those things and constantly encouraging them and calling it out. But it comes in a million different things. We have a staff meeting every Tuesday morning where we have a sort of five minute update on what's going on in the company and then a 45 minute activity where everybody engages in everything from building competitions, you know, the, the, the marshmallow competition to see who could build the tallest tower and put a marshmallow on top that doesn't follow all over. We recombine people in different groups from different departments and give them problems and then say, 
you know, who, who can come up with the best solution fastest. We encourage competition, but it's always good natured competition. And as the team has grown, I mean, I, we're probably at two or two and a half times the size we were just a few years ago. That's a, a challenge is to, is to create that curiosity. We also, we have this weird thing in our meetings where anybody is allowed to crash. You know, short of the sort of finance meeting, anybody within the organization says, oh, that's the public, pub, you know, everybody's got sort of a public schedule. What's going on in that meeting seems interesting. They're talking about how to use blockchain to secure ledger transactions. Yeah, That seems cool. Even though I'm not on the dev team, maybe I'll show up to that. So crashing parties is something that we encourage. We encourage people to write. We have a blog where most of it isn't, you know, the far, vast majority of it isn't me. It's people within the organization who have an idea and we encourage them to write it for themselves. So it's, it's a lot of things, but it's cultural. Well, I mean, it's cultural, but it's it's an essential kind of habit that you're in, inserting here to also ensure that your company stays on on the edge and that you keep re, re, well, reinventing yourself, renewing yourself. Well, it, it's also, I got to say that we, it feels like cheating sometimes, but that we, I did a couple of things early on. I'm a huge consumer of content in the space. And a number of years ago, I picked up some, some there's some people and experts and, and content that I read. I also, I went out and people think I'm crazy, but I hired as, as what we now call our chief of staff, I hired a psychology student running a, a business. And most of what we've done has a even academic psychological base to it because I realized fairly early on that the people in the psychology of the people were more important in achieving the goals than anything else. So we try to understand the human element of it. Hmm, okay. And? It's worked well. We've had very, very high satisfaction levels within our employees. We don't, as a growing company, especially at the beginning, I mean, we're better now than we used to be, but we weren't paying, we weren't the highest paying software company out there. In fact, what I hear from most of my peers who run software companies is that the single biggest challenge they have is finding good talent and retaining good talent. We just don't have that problem. If we put up a, a, a job description and a posting, within a few weeks, we'll have as many as a thousand applicants. When your culture is authentic and you're able to communicate it, people want to be around that, even if you're not paying the top salaries in the space. We have some really amazing people here, and those amazing people and that amazing culture seems to have created a, somewhat of a critical mass that attracts others. So congratulations, because that's, that's, uh, that's a big thing that, that a lot of companies are struggling with. And I think you found a solution for, to that. And I agree, it's not, it's not money, but it's it, something completely different. Absolutely. But the, the funny thing is, is people ask me all the time, okay, what's the one thing that you did to do that? And I said, I didn't do one thing. I spent seven years with some core team members building a culture, which kind of goes back to the whole shortcut thing. People keep asking me, okay, could you just tell me about this one thing that you did? And then I could use that and I could have the exact same recruitment success and I said yeah. well no it's not it's not that <laughs> it's they're simple ideas but it, it's a discipline and it takes a lot of hard work yeah true it needs to be authentic like you said it needs to be lived throughout you're talking you've been talking about a couple of things well about values a couple of times yeah so what are those values so we have seven of them that we work on a lot we actually just very quickly I'll tell you the process that we came up with them is years ago, we sat down and put them all up 
everything that we could think of. We had a brainstorming session. Everybody just wrote words out on, on a screen. And then we kind of played the, well, if you could only have one of these two on your tombstone, here lies John, he was an honest man, or here lies John, he was a diplomatic man, you, and you had to pick one. So in our case, we got rid of diplomatic and kept honest. So we did that with, I think, what started out as hundreds of words. And when we came down to it, we just couldn't pick between them anymore. Then we knew we had a good set. So our values, honesty, respect, impact, passion, learning, rigor, and clarity. Fantastic. And they all work together. Well, yeah. And we actually, it was funny at the beginning when we were still trying to learn it ourselves, we did this thing where people would hand out almost like tickets at a certain point. If somebody did something that was promoting the values or was taking away from the values, somebody would walk up to them and say, hey, you did a really good job being clear in this situation. Hey, you weren't rigorous enough in this situation. And yeah. it went from all the way to the most junior person to me and from me sideways and all kinds of things like that. And that was a hard transition, but it was it was one of the sort of foundational things that we did at the, we don't do it anymore, but at the, at the base of the culture to teach people, it's okay to say, I'm not happy with how you just behave. Cause if you, yeah, because if you don't, it will be something that's on your wall maybe, but no one will live it because they don't believe in it anymore. Yes, that authenticity that you, you remarked on is yep. absolutely essential to what we do. Pretty cool. So what are you most proud of achieving so far? Oh, I'm proud of a lot of things. I think that if I had to pick something, I'm proud of the, the, the quality of the team that we have today. It's really, it's actually quite something just to what people remark on it all the time. They walk in the office and there's just a great buzz here. People like to be here. For me, that was hard to build because work is your job, right? As opposed to your passion. And I'm very proud that the team has made it so that I actually enjoy coming to work every day. And I think most of the people here, I hear stories about how on Sunday nights when their friends or partners are dreading going back to work on Monday morning, they're really excited. So that, that's something I'm proud of. I'm proud of the technology. I'm proud of the partnerships too, the, the stuff that we've done. We've tried to keep the, those values in our design of the product, in our treatment of our, our partners, and that's, that's worked really well. You know, we've worked, some of, some of our partners are really amazing because we've kind of gone to them and said, I know this is the way you normally work, but this is how we'd like to work. Yeah. And this is how we approach things. Are you open to doing it that way? And that's, I mean, there, I don't know if I should call out company names, but Servoy sure. was a great example of right from the beginning. We said to them, I know that this is how you normally do business, but this is how we would like to do it. And they thought about it and went, yeah, okay, that sounds kind of cool. Another company was this automated testing company that we worked with called Testcraft. And they kind of gave us their pricing model and their approach to implementation. We said, yeah, we understand that, but it doesn't really make sense for us. We'd like to do this instead. Are you open to that? And they went, yeah, okay. And we've been able to build a very strong and, and effective partnership with that. So as opposed to other larger companies that said, no, this is the way we work too bad. Yeah. Long term, those partnerships aren't strong and we tend to move away from them. Even companies like Google, for example, we use the Google uh, Cloud as one of our cloud providers, and they were extremely open to flexible work, work arrangements, supporting us, you know, bringing in resources from all over the place for us to brainstorm solutions to, to problems. 
all of that was possible regardless of the size of the company. But the character of the company, some of the partners were very inflexible. And I don't, you know, it won't last forever with them. And I think they're aware of that as much as we, or if they even care. I, I think that I guess if you ask, you know, the, the question this all started with was, are we proud of anything? I guess creating those values and sticking to them within all aspects of what we do as much yeah. as we can yeah. is something that I'm, it would be so, sort of something I'm very proud of that kind of filters into all the different areas. And I agree. The moment you only kind of push this internally, then, then it's also not complete. And the moment you apply it also to your partners, that's that's where you create one big cohesive network. Yeah. And you can you can rely on that. You can kind of yeah, come back on it and say, wait a minute, this is not this is not working out that way and let's get it back on track. Interesting. So I mean yeah, I mean we can go a long way also into into the partner angles as well, but we don't have the time for that because it's already uh, I think I see more than half an hour here. If you were to, from, from everything that you've learned and you would be asked to, to give an advice to other technology entrepreneurs, what would the advice be? So I think I've said a lot of it already, but just to reiterate, I think that seeking shortcuts as opposed to real value and long-term value, you know, you, you get out what you put in. So if you shoot for fast, then, you know, it's a trend and it'll be over quickly. I think the people are people, not resources is one of the most important things we we realized along the way. And I think that empathy is something that, I mean, I don't, I don't think generationally all of us grew up with realizing how important empathy is, but once you open the door, it's like a revelation to realize that, that people respond to it so powerfully. Exactly. That's it. That's it. I mean, I, I could, I mean, you've you probably gotten the, I've never been accused of saying too little, right? So I was I was just kind of, okay, you were, you, you're about to say something. Okay. But these are, these are really good, good, good nuggets. And I'm going to make a, a summary of, of everything we said. And so that's kind of going to come out really beautifully. So what is next for you? What is your greatest aspiration? So it's funny. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things next. I mean, I knew, I knew you were going to ask that question and I, I, thought to myself, I mean, what were we talking? So, but we're working on a bunch of projects. We're constantly improving our software. There's some really great integrations that are coming out over the next few months. We plan on launching some marketing campaigns. We feel that we've achieved sort of a level of, of completeness in the product. But the reality is with the team that we have right now, really there's nothing that we can't do. So we've fooled around with the idea of applying some of the technological and process learnings that we've had to completely other industries. So say genetic information, for example, we've messed around with the idea of putting together disparate technologies that you wouldn't normally see together, putting them in the, in the, in the same area. It's really, we're living in an age of miracles at this point. And to be able to take advantage of them, I honestly think that the, the vehicle you need is a great collaborative, authentic group. So for the product perspective, we're connecting, like I said, to Amazon. There's some other platforms that we're releasing. We're building some partnerships for distribution inside Europe. We are expanding within North America. So honestly, what's next is, you know, the sky's the limit kind of thing. We're, we're, we're still growing with more employees. At, at this point, what's, we're focusing on the, on the fun that we're having right now and kind of what the next one or two steps are along the, the path in the journey and all these other opportunities are there. 
and we'll, we'll get to them or not, depending on, on what, the, what the journey dictates, if that makes any sense. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So if there's anything you could ask the audience, I mean, and I can agree, I agree, I can assure you there are a number of people in there that are coming from the ERP space. But I mean, also, of course, a lot of people from the outside. What would you ask them? How could they help you? So I think that I would be curious from the audience's perspective about whether or not, or I guess what the, the size limitation is, because Whereas our technology can handle a company from one user to a thousand users or 10,000 users, really there's a mindset that's required to adopt a completely new approach to something so old as ERP. And I'm curious what they think would be the characteristics of the limitation. Well, if they do regulated manufacturing, of course, they'll never use a brand new approach to ERP. Or if they have over this number of users, or if they have a security requirement, or you know those kind of things. Because the hardest thing for us to do is to identify boundaries sometimes, yeah, because yeah. we think our stuff is applicable everywhere. But you know the feedback from the from cloud or the group or the mob <laughs> would be able to tell us where where shouldn't we go. Interesting. I like that question. And it's sort of representative of what you are. So where can people find out more about Donart and say hi to you? So we have, I mean, all the, all the typical social media and blogs and things like that, but all of them are easily accessible from our main webpage, which is www.jonar.com. I think they'll, they'll even get to see avatar pictures of me. Something I'll, I'll note for, for anybody who wants to go look. People think that we just use cartoon characters, but no, every single one of those cartoon characters you see on our site is an avatar of somebody that works here. And that's kind of their, after they graduate from the internship to full-time status, one of their graduation gifts is our designer makes them an avatar. Cool. Well, this was fun and inspirational and thought-provoking. Let's put it that way. I like your approach to something that I've been in so long but you give a completely different and fresh approach to that. That's remarkable, I would say. Well, I appreciate that. It's, I, I got to say, I don't know if it's going to work. You know, Who knows if we end up being a, a massive success or just one more of the nice ideas that kind of falls by the wayside. But either way, I feel successful because, like I said, the, the team and the journey that we've worked on is so valuable that even if the commercial success is limited, I think that we've achieved something great here. Can I only agree with that. But I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. The same on my side, John. And I'm sure my audience will have enjoyed your insights and your beliefs as well. And that leads me to turn myself to everybody that's listening today. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to John Ruby, CEO of Jonar. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. 
So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.